super, super valuable to have people that have an understanding of AI at the you know, highest levels in the company. People that understand the value of data and understand that it's a process that can take time. It's a process that naturally has experimentation, which failure is a part of experimentation. And when you can have an understanding at the highest levels of a company that we're making investments in automation or data, that there will be things that we learn along the way that will have to inform our decisions. That's really, really powerful because it gives you the flexibility to make the right choices. Whereas you can imagine a company that says, you know, give me your year plan for your team right now. What are you going to do for one for two? Oftentimes the data is informing what you do. And so if you plan one year out, three years out too specifically, it's just a waste of time. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released through the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Felipe Flores. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. Today, we're speaking with Tyler Falkman. Tyler is the head of artificial intelligence at Branded Entertainment Network, and um, he's had a a really long and interesting career working in Ancestry.com, working in universities, writing uh, with uh, towards data science, and obviously now at at Branded Entertainment Network. So we're very excited to have Tyler on the show today. Tyler, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So Tyler, I might might ask you to kick us off with a bit of an origin story, mate. How how did you get started in the world of data? What was it that pulled you in? And how did you end up becoming uh, head of AI at uh, Branded Entertainment Network? Yeah, um, I have an interesting kind of background, I suppose, a little less traditional. I actually studied economics in undergrad. Um, After I graduated, I went and worked for a consulting company doing what's called economic consulting, which is not a super well-known area. Um, Basically, what that involves is when there's large lawsuits, um, they usually have to come up with a damage number. So if you're, you know, when Apple was suing Samsung, they have to hire economists to come up with damage numbers. Sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. That's um, all right. He's excited too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what, what kind of happens is they hire economists to try to come up with how much they should sue each other for. So when Apple's suing someone for, you know, a billion dollars or Samsung, whatever the company may be, 
they hire these economic consulting companies to run statistics, analytics, data, and come up with a number to say this patent infringement was worth X amount of dollars. And so that was kind of my first entrance wow. into the world of data. Um, I got to work with some really smart economists, got to kind of see data used um, in a cool way. And that kind of got me learning a little bit about machine learning, um, found that very exciting, thought I could, you know, do a lot more as I could kind of grow my understanding of different algorithms. And so I went back to school to University of Texas in Austin and studied computer science um, and kind of really focused my studies on machine learning. And that kind of was able to get me into some jobs at like Amazon while I was in school, which then led to working in Ancestry and doing a lot of work with unstructured data. So one of the cool things we did there is we built this ability to read in raw newspapers. So like a picture of a newspaper, you could then use computer vision to break it up into all the articles. And then you could use natural language processing to basically find all the interesting family relationships in that. So if there was like an obituary when someone died, you can yeah. go in and pull out like who died, when did they die, who were they related to, which is really useful information for people trying to do family history work. Um, mm -hmm. And it was all automated using, you know, deep learning, machine learning. Uh, wow. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It was fun to work on those problems. And then after a few years, uh, Ben or Brandon Entertainment Networks reached out to me and wanted to see if I wanted to start a, a team for them, basically. So a year and a half ago, I joined them. Um, basically built a team from myself to we're now about 11 people and just working on trying to find out how to really leverage AI and data in the world of entertainment, specifically product placement. So if you're watching a movie or a TV show and you see like a, a car and you know, it zooms in on like a logo, that's product placement. Um, but we also do things with influencers too. Like if you're watching, you know, you on YouTube, you might have sponsors or people you talk about. And so we try really hard to connect brands with content in a way that's really natural and rewarding for both, you know, the brand, the creator and the audience. So the audience feels like, yeah, this was actually really relevant to me, you know, on a data science podcast talking about an O'Reilly book is maybe really relevant. So that sponsorship makes a lot of sense. So we try to make that seamless and use data to make it scale and be really effective. Man, that's fantastic. And when you first started at Ben, was it, um, it, you said it was just you and it was sort of getting, getting everything uh, started from scratch. How was, how was the early parts of that, um, of that journey? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I've always wanted to kind of have an opportunity to lead a team, um, build something. We had a few engineers that we kind of started with that were already there who've been super excellent. And so that was a huge benefit to me is having a few people that were in the company knew the data and knew what's what was kind of going around. And we used them, scaled up a data engineering team to kind of build a platform for data scientists to make it easy to get data, deploy models, um, basically do data science. And then we started hiring on data scientists and even some research scientists to kind of move the state of the art forward. So it's been really rewarding. It's been a really busy year and a half building kind of our foundation. Um, but we've had a lot of success and they're seeing some real value um, for the company using data, which is always exciting. Yeah, wow. So it, it um, sounds like you, you did it the right way around in terms of getting the platform up and running first, getting, <laughs> getting uh, the, the data ready or the capability to have, to have data for, for data scientists. That's, that's excellent because a lot of times people um, succumb to the pressure, I guess, and I, I know I've definitely done that mistake in the past, succumb to the pressure of um, 
show you know the business pressure or, or showing something of value and and sometimes often people hire data scientists first and then they have I don't know very little to do but but they're definitely <laughs> constrained because they don't have the, the platforms that enables uh, data science in that way did you find it difficult to to go about it the right way and in, in your case yeah I mean it can be challenging we tried to balance it so we what we try to do is release you know, have data scientists working on models that weren't released in the platform yet because it wasn't built yet, but we found ways to release them that created value for the company while in parallel that engineers are working hard on getting, you know, the platform up and going. Because I really am a big believer in data scientists being able to own the process, you know, all the way from data collection, cleaning, modeling to deployment. And even, you know, creating little web applications, you know, the data scientists on our team actually can deploy their own models and create front end interfaces so that someone on the team can come actually play with the model that's not a data scientist, see what the predictions are, see if it makes sense. And we found that creating a platform that enables data scientists to do that allows them to work much more efficiently. Um, where I've seen people kind of fail sometimes is if you treat it more like an assembly line where data scientists only model they just get blocked too much if they have to rely on so many teams to get value. Um, it just never works in my experience. I agree. Maybe it could work, but I haven't seen it work. So the more you can handle as a data scientist, I think the more valuable you'll be. I agree. I could not agree more. And um, did you find any um, resistance or pushback or, or, um, or people coming in from with a different expectation or different mindset when you were presenting this idea of, of being generalist to them and, and being across the whole value chain and taking taking accountability and ownership for that, how how did you find that people reacted to, to that direction? Yeah, I mean, I've been super lucky um, because one, the executive team at the company is really, really interested in AI, very knowledgeable and really trust me, I think, to make the decision. So I've been able to get, have a lot of, I guess, abilities to do that. Um, and then since this team started from scratch, I could hire people that were excited about that. So I didn't come into a team that was doing something one way and had to shift it to another way. I actually come in and say, this is the way we should do it. And let's do it from the beginning and bring people in who are excited about doing it that way. So we've been able to hire some really amazing people that have really, I think, adopted this idea of our job doesn't end until we've created value for the company. And if that means you're learning how to, you know, write unit tests or you are learning how to write some front end code or spending more time cleaning up your code and making it faster. That's what we do. Um, and if that means you should be doing more modeling, that's what you do. So it's kind of whatever it takes to create value with data is what my team is trying to accomplish. Awesome. Awesome. That is a fantastic man. And what, how important do you think the, um, the reporting line is and the, the knowledge of, of, AI in in the reporting line for for you and your team. Um, how what what type of impact has that had in in what you guys have been able to accomplish in in the last year and a half? Yeah, I think it's super super valuable to have people that have an understanding of AI at the you know highest levels in a company. People that understand the value of data and understand that it's a process that can take time. It's a process that naturally has experimentation, which Failure is a part of experimentation. And when you can have an understanding at the highest levels of a company that we're making investments in automation or data 
that there will be things that we learn along the way that will have to inform our decisions. That's really, really powerful because it gives you the flexibility to make the right choices. Whereas you can imagine a company that says, you know, give me your year plan for your team right now. What are you going to do for one for two? Oftentimes the data is informing what you do. And so if you plan one year out, three years out too specifically, it's just a waste of time. So what I found to be really valuable is you have a team that understands that they can be comfortable with some ambiguity because that's just the way it is. Not that you shouldn't have an idea where you're going and the steps to get there, but if you try to treat it too much, like let's map out every step for the next year, you'll often find yourself just learning way more during the process and finding that uh, what you thought was going to happen isn't actually what happened. <laughs> exactly right, hundred percent. That's that's really good. And um, have you had to spend much time in educating um, other executives in the company and in and, and fostering that uh, knowledge of AI and that data uh, literacy and data curiosity? No, not really. I think everyone on the team when I came in was already really, you know, they'd spent time learning about AI. They, you know, made sure that they thought it made sense. Obviously, I think I've been able to help them learn more, but they've just already known a lot, been really receptive. Um, so it's been a really great fit, um, which I think is kind of a key to success, right? You need, if you want data science or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, to be core to your company's success, it needs to be like anything. People at all levels need to be bought in and understand what that means and have expectations that align with reality. <laughs> I think that is so key, isn't it? <laughs> that align with reality. That's that's great. And uh, we have a question from Taz Tudor. Hey, hey, Taz. Um, and he's asking if you can give examples of some of the platforms that you're using to uh, for data scientists to own the end-to-end the -end, um, process or the end-to-end -end value chain. And, um, and essentially, yeah, go through the whole uh, spectrum, obviously, whatever you can share, whether it was off the shelf or in built-in house. And how do you get data scientists to be able to share the predictions of, of the models with, with, um, with users? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's an interesting field right now. So what I would call that field is ML ops or machine learning operations, and it's kind of exploding. Um, even a year or two ago, there weren't a lot of paid tools that did that very well for like companies trying to just pay to not have to worry about it. A few emerged that are better than others, I think. We don't use any. We've actually, since it's pretty core to our success, we want to own that end to end. So we've built basically from the ground up using open source. And I'll talk about that in a second because I think that's valuable. But there are some tools I think that exist that are pretty decent. Um, there are some like Comet ML that do things like experimentation tracking. So when you're running models, you kind of can push your metrics to this front end and it will show you like your learning curves. It'll show you loss. It'll basically plot whatever you want. It's kind of like a tensor board type thing, but they take care of a lot of the operation of that for I think a really reasonable price. Other what, things what like- What was that one called, sir? Um, Comet ML. Yep. They're pretty solid. Um, another one I've heard good things about is Converge.io. Uh, I've heard they have a really solid, almost like full service data science platform that's supposed to do a lot. We, we don't use them, so I can't speak too deeply, but I've heard good things. Then if you look on the open source side, there's a lot of things you can kind of play with. Um, one that I found people talk a lot about is Kubeflow which uses Kubernetes to kind of scale the machine learning um, operations. Uh, there's another one called MLflow, which is a Databricks service, and Databricks is behind Spark. Um, Metaflow is Netflix's kind of 
operational machine learning platform. Um, and then, so another tool we actually do use is Streamlit, which is allows you to do front end experimentation as a data scientist. So you can really easily take your models and get them into a front end app that people can say, you know, here's my inputs, what's my output? And it, and it makes it really easy for data science to do front end work. So what we've kind of decided on my team is we take a lot of these open source tools and kind of build the glue to make them work with our framework and our processes and then build additional things when necessary. We found that to be really beneficial um, because if you are building a data, a company on which data science is core, you need your platform to really fit into your back end and into your the way you do things. And that can be hard if you're buying it as a service. Um, if you're just getting started as a startup and you don't really have a back end yet, you don't really have anything yet, paying for some of these services can really probably get you moving faster. But for companies that are looking to really integrate it into an existing architecture, I think getting really talented engineers to help integrate open source or even some paid things into your pipeline can do a lot. Um, there's a lot of great tools out there and figuring out how to glue them together for how they work for you can be really powerful. That's, that's fantastic, man. That's fantastic. Um, and you, you said that you're going to um, talk a little bit about the, the open source side. Um, some of the open source tools that you guys use uh, as part of the end-to-end -end value chain. Could you give us a, a bit of an overview? Yeah, so a lot of those ones I mentioned, they are open source. So Streamlit's open source. I think Kubeflow uh, is open source, but you can also pay Google to do manage for you through mm -hmm. their cloud. It's a Google product. Um, what else? Metaflow is open source. Um, there's other things like DDC. It's open source for like data management tools. Um, what else do I see? Those are probably some of the big ones. Metaflow is, I think, one of the better ones that's open source. Um, and then MLflow, I think, has some open source functionality as well. Nice. That's, that's really good. That's really good. And um, can you tell us, can you give us some, some uh, examples or use cases, uh, obviously things that you can share about how, um, how, the, the, how AI and the data science team are, are adding value to, to the organization and what those uh, projects or use cases look like? Yeah, for sure. So one of our core things is connecting the brand with the best partner. Um, and so you can imagine you're a YouTuber, you're a podcaster on the, on what we call the influencer side. So people that are out there creating content on places like Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok, Spotify, right? With the podcast side. And then there's a bunch of brands on the other side, right? And the brands want to reach an audience that cares about their product. The person creating the content wants to connect their audience with products they care about. And they want to do it in a way that's really native and fits well with what the content is they're creating. And they also want to get support, right? Like that's the thing. They, they want support to be able to do what they love and create content for, for their audiences. So where we try to use data is almost like a recommendation algorithm where you've got all these brands, all these potential creators for these brands and how do you connect them in the best way possible? And what makes that kind of challenging is brands can have very different goals. So one brand might really want to just get the word out about their brand. One, one brand might want to change perception about their brand in the marketplace. One brand might really just care about conversions. Maybe they have um, an app that they sell and they don't care about anything except getting people to buy that app, right? And so how do you use the data to connect brands to the best creators of content? 
And we think that's super powerful because people don't watch ads, right? Like if you're watching a show on TV, you're, you're skipping the ads, right? Any brand trying to reach their audience through traditional advertising is going to have a hard time. If you do it on like paid ads online, people block that pretty easily with web browsers. And so what we try to do is make it easy and super effective for brands to connect with creators. They have audiences that care about their brand. Um, so, you know, for you, you, you have this data podcast connecting you with um, some of these people that are really passionate about data and are creating products around it could be a great fit depending on their goals. And that we think is a win-win for everyone. And since we've been doing it for so long, we have a long history of data on what's working and hasn't worked. And we can use that data to start saying, okay, when we see these patterns, there's success there. So when a new brand comes and work with us, we say, based on the data, we're seeing success. And as brands work with us, we get more data from them, right? And we can say, based on the data we're seeing running your campaigns, we can now continue to optimize for success for you. And it's just this recommendation algorithm that consistently gets better and better and better as they work with us because we see what works and what doesn't for their goals. That's awesome. That is awesome. And what, what type of data do you need from both sides of the marketplace? And, and do you do a lot of work with, with uh, unstructured data? How, how does that look like? Yeah, we do a lot of work with unstructured. Um, generally from the platforms, meaning like YouTube, Instagram, we connect to their APIs, which allows us to programmatically pull data over like, how, what's the average number of views someone's getting on their YouTube channel? How often are they posting? What's the engagement rate? Those are some pretty simple ones. We, we dive a lot deeper, which gives you a sense. We can also look at some of the unstructured data around that. Um, you know, what's the thumbnail? What's um, the video even? We do a lot of video processing to kind of see what, what's the content they're creating. Hmm. And then on the brand side, what we really just need is what's working for the brand. So as we run campaigns, let's say that they want to uh, maximize conversions. Say we work with YouTuber X, and they get 10 conversions and we work with YouTuber Y and they get 100 conversions. We then use that data and feed it back into our models to say, why did this happen? Why did they get such different conversions? And then when we retrain the model, we can then re-predict on all the YouTubers we know about and then reorder them and say, based on what's been working, here's the new order for this brand on YouTubers they should uh, prioritize. And not only prioritize, but we actually do predict how well we think we'll do for your brand. So we'll yep. say, we think this YouTuber will generate 20 conversions for you. And as a brand, you usually have a good idea of what a conversion's worth. So then you can have a sense of how much should you pay that person? Because that's a challenging thing in, in the uh, product placement space is how much do you pay someone on YouTube or on Instagram or a TV show or a movie to have your product in it um, can be challenging. And having data to kind of guide that to say, yeah, this is a reasonable price um, is very valuable. That's really good. And do you guys look into um, things like um, competing, maybe competing products or competing offers uh, in in each of the channels? Like when you when you work with with a um, say a YouTuber or a distribution channel, that they might already have some uh, some products that are being placed through that. And how do you guys take into consideration what can be uh, a, a a product that is in competition or a product that's in a complement or, or an un, untapped area for uh, for that distribution a channel? Yeah, that is definitely one thing we can do for a channel. We can see how much of their content's been sponsored in the past, who's sponsoring it, when did they sponsor it. So when we're working with the brand, we have a good idea of 
you know, are they sponsoring your competitors? <laughs> because then you maybe don't want to sponsor that person, or maybe you do. Like, again, that comes more down to a strategic decision at the brand level. Mm-hmm. But we, we as a data science team are trying to provide as much information and data-backed reasoning as possible for decisions. And we, we are strong believers in what we call the cyborg approach, meaning we have expert humans in the team that know how to run marketing campaigns backed with expert machine learning tools that allow them to kind of have a really strong understanding of what's working and not working. It's data-backed, prediction-backed, and then use their expert uh, human understanding to make good decisions in obviously with working with the brand as a partner. That's awesome, man. That's really great. And we we got a question from from Naku. Hey, Naku. Right. Um, and he uh, he's wondering, um, well, it's related back to about the open source tooling. And um, he wanted to ask you about um, the fact that often when when uh, a company is looking, an established company usually is looking to adopt open source tooling, the team gets a lot of questions around uh, what is what is the value. Um, what's going to be the, the effect for, for the stakeholders and um, how, how has your team uh, quantified that benefit or, or made that, that sort of internal sale in, in the past? Um, and Knuckles saying that a lot of times uh, he feels like the improvements are more for the, for the technical team, for the data science team around their developer experience or easy debugging or the, the community and the support behind the tool but sometimes it's difficult to quantify that for the executives and the, and the end users. Um, have you guys come across that before? And, and how, did you, um, how did you go past it if, if you have? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a challenge, right? When you're basically trying to communicate with people that are on the same background as you. Um, like if you're a very technical data scientist and you're trying to communicate with people that don't have a, sorry, I'm just this for, uh, technical background, how do you do that, right? And I think there are some strategies you can use. One is, I think technical people rely a little bit too much on straight up data sometimes when trying to convince people. That is a key part, and I'll come back to that, but you also need to connect an emotional value, I think, to some of these things and make it feel valuable. Meaning that when you go and talk to someone and are saying, we want this tool, maybe you've calculated it'll save you know 10 developer hours a month, just making up numbers. That's, I think, definitely one thing you should bring up, but you should also try to find a way to connect it to their background. Meaning, you know, what's the average developer salary in your company? What 10 developer hours a month, what does that equate to a year? You can then maybe come up with a number that says it'll save us 50 grand a year. And then you can connect that to something that they know about, right? You know, if we get this tool, we will be able to buy this thing, or we would be able to invest in this thing that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do, or maybe hire another person that can make us move faster. And, and there's a book that talks about this called Switch, um, which is, I think, Switch Making Change When Change is Hard. And it talks about how people kind of have two modes. One is like your emotional mode, and one is more of your like analytical mode. And when you're trying to convince people of something, you need to kind of hit both. You need to show them this like vision of why this thing is awesome. And a lot of that's going to be emotional, right? Marketers know this, that people make decisions based on emotions. And then you also need to provide the data to back that up and what you think the next steps are gonna be. So you can, you can be like, just imagine this world where next year we save so much money, we can hire another person. And we're gonna get there by investing in this tool. It will cost this much, but it will save us this much an hour. So you're not only providing like the data behind it, but you're also providing the like, the vision around why we wanna make this investment and trying to connect it to something they understand. 
Um, I think that's where a lot of data scientists get a little bit mixed up is they just want people to act almost very, very, very rational, which maybe would be nice, but it's just not the way things tend to work. You need to be hitting the rational side as well as the, you know, emotional side of that decision. I think that is an excellent suggestion, man. And definitely if you, if you understand the, the person that's making the decision and you understand their motivations, um, there will be some, some um, subjective area that they care about, something, something that they would like some bragging rights about. And, and if you can line up with that um, in an emotional way, and people might, might you know, be wanting to tell their superiors or their peers that they're using the latest technology on this side or that they're able to, to attract more, better talent, um, better, more talented people because they use X and Y, then that, that's definitely a good way, good way to go about it. But I totally agree with you, Tyler. The, the emotional lever is, is often um, untapped or, um, or insufficiently tapped uh, in, in, our, in our area. Um, that's really good. And Nakul says, thank you. Now, all good, right? Good, good question. Um, and Tyler, I want to ask you when you, when you uh, first, first started in this role and, and um, over, over the past year and a half, how, I wanted to ask you about your, your, your planning and your strategy. And um, so how did you define um, the, the strategy for for the team in the organization? How did you find the strategy when you first came in and how did that evolve over time? And what have been your, your areas of focus um, over, that, over the journey and how has that been, been changing over time? Yeah, I think so when I first came in, there was definitely a strategy in place and things that just had to be done, right? And I think that's pretty common. When, when people are gonna hire someone, they hopefully have an idea of what that person should be doing. So, the first maybe six months were pretty defined. We had a few just objectives the business needed out of us and we, we delivered on them. I think once you get past it, then it's kind of like, especially if you're leading a team, what do we do right now? Like we kind of hit the first goals. For me, the way I like to think about it is how do I enable the most innovation and opportunity for true value creation um, to be created from data? And to do that, a lot of it's actually setting up the, the systems right, right? It's setting up the platform, it's um, hiring great people, it's making the data accessible and easy to understand. You wanna make it so easy for a data scientist to just great to come in and just be able to create value fast. Um, and so a lot of my focus was how do we get the platform working well so that when we do hire these really excellent data scientists, that they can go end to end, full stack, very easily, come in, have an idea, figure out if it works quickly and if it doesn't move on to the next idea and basically create an engine for innovation. For the company. Um, and then second, I tried to focus the team on things that I thought were clear value creation that were hard to replicate from our competitors, basically. So um, something might be clearly valuable, but if everyone else is already doing it and doing it well, it might be hard to maybe dominate in that right to really create exceptional value with but if you can do something um truly great and it's hard to replicate and it creates a lot of value then that's that's exciting and so i think my team really try to focus on that type of value where we we see huge amounts of value for the company and for the the brands we work with and the influencers we work with 
And we also think that it's something that gives us a competitive advantage um, in the marketplace. And that's something that I kind of took from, I'm um, blanking on his name, but he used to work at Netflix and he, he's fairly, you know, he does a lot of talks about this. And one of the things he talks about is how Netflix tried to do this, right? You try to create value in ways that gives you an actual competitive advantage. And one thing to look at is how hard is it to replicate? <laughs> Yeah, that's really great. And and um, do you have any examples uh, of of that that you, that you could share uh, in terms of areas where you feel that you guys have been been able to create a, a competitive competitive advantage from uh, the data science work? Yeah, I think a few areas. One is actually our platform. We've invested a lot of time and resources in making it easy for data scientists to innovate quickly, and I think that's a huge competitive advantage for us because that's a, a lot of upfront cost to invest in something like that and it takes a lot of expertise to build. But once you have it, data scientists can iterate on an idea very quickly. And so if it takes our competitors a year to test out an idea and it takes us a week, um, we can just test so many more ideas. Um, secondly, our ability to make these performance predictions is very, I think, unique and hard to replicate. It's not easy to say this influencer will work super well with this brand and then quantify that value. Um, and we've learned a lot through our process and have invested a lot in trying to figure this out. And I think that's one reason we have an advantage is just the data we have as a company been doing this for a while and the expertise we've been able to invest and figure this out and really just kind of create things that were non-trivial, uh, I think gives us an edge. So that's amazing, man. And I love I love the focus on scalability or on, on scale, uh, on reproducibility and um and for for the decisions to be made from a from a quant perspective that's um and, and for those decisions to be done at scale like i think that's that's um definitely a huge competitive advantage and really really exciting and sometimes um i see a lot of data science teams get get stuck in doing things manually time after time and and sometimes you get to sort of either step back and look at the fact that things are quite similar, like they can be created, uh, they can be put into a platform that you can create to, to make it scalable. And you get those, um, those improvements going from, as you were saying, if the competitor is taking a year to do something and it takes you a week because of your platform, then that's, that's a huge, huge win. Um, was that, was a focus on scale something that you had from the beginning? Yeah, for sure. There's, Another book I like called Moonshots, which came out I think last year, which talks about like, how do you create value with innovation? Um, and it's interesting, you kind of have to reach a critical mass of experimentation to kind of see value with that. And I think what the book suggests is on average, like good ideas actually fail like three times before someone figures out how to do it. So they talk about some of these different inventions like in war and in medicine where people were onto the right idea but they just didn't follow it long enough or they didn't invest enough in it and then they bailed and then another person bailed and then like the third person that kept going with it, it finally worked. And so one of the challenges with innovation is knowing when to keep going and when to stop. And if you can make the cost to keep going lower, you can just innovate so much more. And you know, if, it's, if the cost to keep going is way less, you make this, yeah, let's keep trying a little bit longer. And it lets you learn so much faster so that you hopefully cut off bad ideas quickly. Like we don't have a crystal ball that we know like this is gonna be the best idea ever going out of the gate. Um, 
but we do know we feel that we're you know a smart talented team and that if we can experiment try things out we'll be able to learn along the way and so we just try to always be learning try to always be improving and again if we can make that cycle faster you just learn so much faster and so it's not that you necessarily had the best ideas going out but you were able to remove the worst ideas really fast <laughs> and then get to the best idea faster that's awesome that's um that's really good and that was that was uh the book is called moonshots like moon um, shots l-o-o-n-s-h-o-t ah. yeah right i'll have to i have to um look look it up ah yep the isafi mm -hmm. bakal yeah nice Thanks, man. I'll, I'll put it on the show notes as well. And uh, we got a question from Conrad. Says, uh, Tyler, how often do you see management uh, getting the data and AI strategy right? So that then the data science, the, the science team and the analytics team can get the right stewardship and direction. And and uh, as a follow-up question of part two, how do you think management can improve the overall data and AI strategy? Yeah, lots to discuss there. Hey. <laughs> it's a good question, hard one to answer. How often do I see it right? Um, I think one of the challenges we have right now is that, well, data science isn't necessarily anything new. You know, people have been doing statistics, you know, actuarial sciences. There's been lots of fields using data for a long time. But what I do think is fairly new is companies really trying to build machine learning based products at scale. So Google and like Facebook may be doing this the longest, these like big tech companies, and they've got some decent processes in place, but they've invested a lot in how to make this work and how to make the strategy work, right? And they've experimented a lot, and I'm sure learned a lot along the way. What we've yet to really define, in my opinion, is like this, these are the best practices for like a data strategy or a data science, you know, um, workflow. And on the engineering side, if you kind of compare it to, they've got some things that are considered maybe best practices, right? Where, you know, Agile is very popular right now. You've got, you know, Git, which data science is a lot. Like they've got so many more decades on, I think the data science flow, they figured a lot more out. I think we're still early days. I'm trying to say, these are things you definitely should do. And so I think it's hard to necessarily say who's doing it well and who's doing it poorly. But I think in my opinion, and we'll see maybe time will put me wrong, I think, the companies that are doing it right are investing in talented people. They're trusting them to know and to handle more than maybe you feel comfortable with, meaning that you make data a top level, you know, they have a seat at the table, basically the company at the highest level so that data scientists understand the strategic vision of the company. Data scientists understand the goals, they understand really how the company is trying to succeed and operate in the marketplace. And then they're given leeway and flexibility to create opportunities using data. Um, where I think sometimes it fails is someone thinks they know at a high level what needs to be done. And then it kind of comes down as like, this has to be done. And that can work well. A lot of ways, a lot of times, like the problem is obvious. And obviously people at high levels have a good idea on the strategy and vision. So I'm not saying that can't work, but I think in the long run, what works the best is where there's a really strong partnership between data and all the teams really, where data scientists have a good understanding of what value means for the company. And they're given again, that opportunity to create it. 
And because they have these experiences with data that I think they can find along the way, say, oh, here's a thing we didn't even think about that seems really valuable. Like a lot of times they're just kind of these serendipitous moments where you're working on a problem and then this other thing comes up that's actually way more valuable. And if a data scientist doesn't have the opportunity or feel like he or she can make these deviations, you miss out on a lot of that. Um, and so that's, I guess, maybe my answer is companies that can meld data with the rest of the company really well, I think will succeed and then trust the data scientists to, to make that happen. That's great. Right, what was the second part of the question here? Uh, well, actually, uh, before before we, we do that, I wanted to ask you about um, some of your tips to improve that partnership between the, the the data teams and the rest of the organization, and and how to create that that tight tight um, connection um, between all the different parts of the organization and 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 your teams. Um, what what are some of your tips? Yeah, I think for me. Um I think expecting more out of data scientists, and expecting more is maybe not the right word, but mm. trusting data scientists to actually understand product needs is really valuable. Like I don't look at data scientists like you're just gonna create models and I'll tell you yeah. what models to create. I like to say data scientists, here's the team that has needs, data needs. We think there's opportunities there. Here are some of my ideas having worked with them where I think there's opportunities. Go meet with some of the people on that team, spend a day in their shoes, look at their workflow, think about it as a data scientist, and then come back and let's talk about what opportunities we see and kind of now kind of figure out what to do together. Because when you give the data science that opportunity to kind of understand the product side a little bit more and the, the needs, they just, I think, will be like, oh, well, if we just use like a regression here or if we gave them this simple tool, they could save five hours a day. Because I just, you know, data scientists and engineers tend to hate mundane repetition. So if they see mundane repetition in a workflow, they'll think very quickly, okay, if it were me, I would build this thing. And then there's kind of this clear value add and this clear use case that they're building towards, as opposed to just going and saying, build a linear regression to predict this data point. Now they're thinking more about the end user and saying, okay, well, I actually want to make sure I have precise predictions or I have high recall or whatever that is. And so that's, I think, a really good way is get your data scientists involved and deeply integrated with the teams so they understand their process and their needs. That's great. That's really good, man. Um, yeah, and I think that that um, kind of covers the, the follow-up question that Corran had, which was, how do you think management can improve their overall data and AI strategy? Um, definitely working working closely in that partnership um, is is very beneficial. Um, so I think that's that's really good. Thank you. And we got a, a thanks from Conrad. No worries. Um, and we uh, question definitely keep the questions coming, guys. And we got a question from Taz Tudor. Hey, mate. Um, he asks about the future. So in five years, where will data science be? Will it be? Uh, humanized, commoditized, something else. Where where do you think uh, things will will go? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice broad question. Um, I think it's hard to say. You know, a funny thing I think that I like to say is predicting the future is hard, <laughs> even though a lot of times that's like the data scientist's job, right? Is to predict the future, like with whatever they're doing. Um, I think that. You know, we're seeing what, what I think we're seeing in some of these large advancements with things like um, on the natural language processing side, GPT-3, 
where it's able to do some really cool stuff. On the image side, we saw a big renaissance, you know, a while back, is when you combine large data sets with really large compute, like training these models is actually a multi-million dollar effort um, if people don't realize that. And most companies can't do that. So I think we'll continue to see people push the boundaries there where they're just like, give me more data, give me more compute, and it's just going to get better. Like, I still think there's opportunities for that to happen. And I think that's exciting because we'll see some of these big breakthroughs that seem really almost like futuristic. I do think, though, AI is still more brittle than people think, meaning there's a long tail of use cases for many types of application. As you look at that long tail, it's not uncommon for the AI to get confused. That's not to me, it's not valuable because if you can, you know, solve 80% and then leave 20% for a human or a different process, that's a huge, huge time saving. And you see this right now with like chatbots for companies, right? They have these chatbots on the internet and when you have a customer service complaint, they interact with you in a more human way and they can funnel you down until they get confused and then they bring in a human, but that saves a lot of time. So I think in the near future, we're going to see a lot more of that where human plus AI is really powerful. Um, that we will be able to allow humans to do, handle more of the complex um, creative things. And the AI will be able to automate a lot of the more root things. And then I also think I'm excited to see where things go when it comes to smaller data sets. Um, how do we allow machine learning and data to be valuable for the masses? And I think that's gonna come down to like really small data sets. Like if you're someone doing agriculture on your farm and you, you know, I don't know, have a few hundred crops or whatever you produce, maybe you don't have a lot of data, but you think data could be valuable for you. How do we create algorithms that are as powerful as some of these deep learning things, but work on small data? I think it's a super interesting problem. Is it possible? I don't know. Is there more work to be done there? I think for sure. And I think as we find ways to basically open up fields to data opportunities. There's gonna be a lot of opportunity to free people's time up to do more creative, more rewarding and higher value work. I think we'll just keep moving down that path as, as we find ways to automate and use data to, to replace functions. Humans will then basically level up and, and take up on more opportunities at a higher level. Yeah, nice, that's really great. And, and for, for you, mate, at, at work, um, what's, what's um, been occupying your, your mind space and what, type, what things are you guys working on that you're, um, that you're excited about that you can share, obviously? Um, but what, what are some of the things that, that you guys are, are working on or that you have coming up? Uh, we're just super excited about bringing data to every aspect of product placement or product marketing from TV to movies. Like we already predict last year, we predicted the top 10 of the top 10 new TV shows, which was super Shit. fun for us. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so that's pretty, because what's interesting about TV is you have to get your product in before the TV show goes live, right? Because it's yeah. part of the filming process. So you don't want to get in like a dud TV show. <laughs> so you want to have some type of understanding of how well this is going to do. Um, and so we can predict that fairly well, which is pretty exciting. What, we're, what we look forward to is this world where data is used to automate a lot of these processes and make it so you got have more of a consistent, reliable return on your investment in a place where people are still trying to figure out, right? If you're trying to get 
an influencer on YouTube or Instagram to talk about your product, the best practices around that are still being figured out. And we think we've learned a lot since we've been doing it so long. And we have an opportunity to take what we've learned and automate some of those using data so that when brands work on these things, they don't have to worry about things like fraud. Like there's so many fake followers or fake engagement out there that it's really easy as a brand to find someone on YouTube and think, oh, this person has 100,000 followers. You know, they must be worth a lot of money. We should have them talk about our product when maybe their engagement was actually um, fraudulent or purchased, or maybe their audience is in a completely different country than where they sell, right? So one of the things we we can predict is where is the audience located um, so that they have a better idea of will this work. And that's what we want to do is kind of basically automate success in this area using data. Um, And maybe you've seen some of this being, you know, an influencer yourself, like people have a hard time, I think, understanding the value of that. And um, we think we can add a lot of value for for brands and for influencers, right? To understand what is their value? How can they maximize their value? You know, is it better for people to post on, you know, YouTube at this time versus that time? Like there's just a lot of interesting stuff to help both sides of the coin. We're excited to kind of automate that so that the the return is a lot more um, known and low variance <laughs> yeah so you're not getting just crazy like this person did great this person just bombed it that's great no really really good and with um it seems like a a lot of a lot of like you guys have done really well in terms of developing your data science capability and and as a result you've got this uh platform that allows you to scale the and 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 quickly uh, be able to produce the results that that are needed for your uh, to deliver the value that the organization um, wants to bring to the marketplace but I wanted to ask you about analysis or questions that maybe sit outside that uh, as in things that that may not be automated cases where you would have to uh, maybe convince somebody um, as a, maybe as a strategic decision or something that's more of a once-off, and if you have any either examples or approaches on on this kind of like other other category uh, that that you could share with us. Yeah, so one of the roles on my team is actually data analysts. Um, they're a little bit different than a data scientist in that their kind of core role is to make sure we're using the data to its fullest capabilities. And a lot of times that comes in one-offs. So that can be like reporting, visualization. It can be answering specific questions for the business um, that don't necessarily need to be automated. Or maybe they are automated in the dashboard, right? Um, Or it could even be machine learning. Like maybe there's an opportunity to augment our data using machine learning and they can build out that process. So generally team data scientists are working on like a little bit of a longer goal of like, we need to predict X, right? Maybe we need to predict conversions for a brand. They're kind of tackling that where the data analysts are saying, you know, here's an interesting question. Can we answer it? Or can we show statistical significance for this result? Um, can we build a dashboard that gives value to the to the executive team or to any team, right? Um, and that's kind of the role of the analyst. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Really great. Um, and I I have I have um probably one one last question for you that I'm really, really curious about. Um yeah. I wanted to ask you with uh, with everything that you've done and, and everything that you've achieved in your professional life, what are you most proud of? What um what has given you the, the greatest sense of achievement and, and um, what do you look back at most fondly at the moment? 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think I think what we're doing right now is what I'm most proud of because I think what we're having is an opportunity which I've had before to kind of build a team and do it in a way that I think makes the most sense. Obviously, that doesn't mean I came in knowing this is the way we we're going to end up. We learned a lot. We made mistakes. We improved on them. But it's fun to have an opportunity to be able to say, what's the best way we can do this and kind of build that from the ground up. And I'm excited to hopefully look back in three years and just kind of say, you know, we did something good here. You know, maybe it wasn't the best way, but we think it was a really good way. And we're building things that you just don't see in the space that we're operating in or the size. So we're, we're building a platform that we think is really something special that we think only really, you know, Netflix type companies have or Google. And then we're hiring data scientists to run that platform who are really talented and working on really hard problems. So I think it's a super exciting moment for me in my career to be building these things. And hopefully in a few years, just kind of look back and say, yeah, like it all came together. It's working really well. We've been able to create these value adds for the company and they've shown their worth over time. So that's what I'm excited to see about in the future is, you know, looking back and be like, yeah, it all worked. We weren't crazy. We made these investments. We, we built these tools. We created these models and it created a ton of value. Oh man, no, it definitely seems like you are very much on the, on the right path. Um, and already kicking amazing goals. Um, I've yeah, I've been I've been super impressed. A lot of the, the comments in the chat um, echo echo my sentiments. Um, people have been really engaged with your perspectives, with your insights, and they, and we're all really thankful um, to you for coming on the show to to share all that. Uh, and thanks, and especially like with with all the the data access that you that you have. Thanks, man. It's a uh, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, no, yeah. That's what you guys have. That's amazing. Um, Super happy to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. Oh, man. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having a chat with you today. Thanks thanks for um, taking some time off your, your public holiday, your day off uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for Labor Day. So uh, I'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your night. Right, thank you so much. We'll be in touch soon. Yeah, you as well. Thanks again. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.